Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. I'm going to start, uh, I'm trying to decide, you know, we'll start in the middle this time. How's that? Now I'm just going to have to remember where I started. So, Ron, we'll start with your table back here. What what kinds of things did you guys discuss that make you angry besides me asking these questions? Well, in the beginning... You know, ang- being angry or being frustrated, that is the question. Mm-hmm. Jesus was asked what... commanded to love them anyway, but I learned, and the example for me was when Jesus went into the temple and he was angry with the money changers. Did he love the money changers? I think he did. He didn't like what they were doing, Mm -hmm. so I don't have to like the person I love. Mm -hmm. I have to show compassion to that person. Mm -hmm. When I really don't want to, have to make yourself do that. I think Christ set the example. Okay. And uh, a lot of times people think we don't like them. They're right. I don't like them. Mm-hmm. But I love them. Mm-hmm. God loves them, and I'm commanded to love them too. Mm-hmm. So trying to make the distinction, and sorry, my hand uh, had a little problem there. Anger and frustration. Okay, good. Let's jump to this table. What did you guys come up with? We talked about um, being angered over when someone is taken advantage of. Okay. Um, especially someone that cannot. So, so I'm going to use the word injustice. Um, so seeing injustice around us uh, will cause anger, frustration, whatever. Yes. Okay. We also talked about um, our own pride. Okay. Um, and then we talked about um, our all sins, either in ourselves or in that we see in another person. Mm-hmm. Okay. So having an honest assessment of ourselves, uh, sometimes is it safe to say that would limit anger? When, when, when we are looking at ourselves as we should, it will. Okay. How about you guys? We kind of talked about the whole idea of being angry for the things that make God angry and uh, loving the things that God loves. That most of our anger really is frustrations. Uh, we jokingly said, do you have a you know, do you have enough time in the dating list of things that make us angry? Mm-hmm. Um, we decided that there are, like the injustice, there are things maybe that should make us angry, but aren't part of our um, world. They are. They don't affect us personally, so they don't anger us as much as maybe they should. Okay. Like. Sexual trafficking, uh-huh. like um, any other kind of injustice that you can think of. Okay, so sometimes we can even be angry over the fact that we don't get angry about the right stuff. Is that okay? Yeah. I don't, 
It would take me all day to write that, so I'm not going <laughs> to write it. But how about you guys? What he said. <laughs> That's the hard part of going last, isn't it? We did talk about injustice and how um, you know in the garden before the fall there was nothing to be angry about, but sin, whether it's in ourselves or in others, um, makes makes us angry. Okay, injustice. I think that anger really is fear. Mm-hmm. There's a great deal of fear that underlies. Okay, so I'm going to write that, Joyce, A equals fear. And you guys will just have to remember that anger equals fear. That's not a person. (laughs) It's not somebody's name. Is that okay? Anger equals fear. Good. Anything else? And did you guys have a chance? I know you got anything. A little bit. Okay. Chris, I hopped over there, and first thing I said is, because I really don't get very angry, but then when they said, well, when someone does something to your kids... That makes you kind of angry. Okay. And my kids are grown now, so I don't have quite that idea. Here um, said, uh, when you have pain. Yeah. And they can't control it or figure it out, or <clears throat> that makes them angry. Just said, uh, when, when your daily schedule is turned upside down, okay. it can make you angry. Disruptions? In case you haven't figured out what I try and do is figure out an easy way to write this so I don't have to write very much. Were you looking for something more than no, this? No, no, just... Well, when you said that, I thought you were looking for something political, maybe. I just no, know. nope, nope. I think being labeled. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put under that ST for stereotypes, just as a... Why do people go to anger management classes? For what? Sometimes their court uh, tells them to. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You have to learn how to deal with anger. Some people, I mean, just the least little spark just throws them in an outrage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anger is a soft word compared to outrage. Right. But that leads to other things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have worked for But he had to go to anger management to recognize when things didn't go his way, what are some of the tools you can use mm-hmm. to calm yourself? Maybe you have, I don't know, I haven't ever been to anger management. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. go ahead and hit the ball and knock a hole in it. I'm, I'm just not really. Uh-huh. I made that up. So if you go to Ron and Mary's house, it's full of holes. <laughs> Dennis, you were saying. Um, maybe when someone's in pain, maybe think loss all the time. Good. Yes. Grieving process loss. Loss. It could be other things, not just death. Yeah, Job. absolutely. Job. Uh, spouse or divorce or just a lot of things. Were you going to say something? Yeah, I, think, I think of times in my life that I've struggled more with anger, and it tends to be when I lost control. You know, back when I had the illusion that I had control, and then I was control of things. But 
Okay. Does he make notes like this at home? <laughs> I I actually have this. I found this thing for my computer. It's called Post-it Notes. I don't know if any of you use these, but it literally looks like a Post-it note. Because I struggle writing, I can type it on my computer and then write to my desktop. I see it, so I do make notes like this at home. Oh. Okay. Um, and that um, it can also be learned behavior. Randy, define generational curse. What do you? Well, I just, from past experience of myself, I look back because I had anger issues when I was younger. And I started researching back in family history. And I just seen it. People would comment about a great grandfather of mine that was, uh, I don't know what. Other than he was just a main type person. And I've seen that fall down through generations. Mm -hmm. It just kind of come to a point that I had gotten out of control with anger, fear, all this mm -hmm. other things. And I said, you know, it has to stop somewhere. Mm -hmm. It stops here because mm -hmm. I'd seen it after I'd done some research through family history. And it's like, why? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it all goes back to what Kathy said. It's a lack of trusting God. Mm -hmm. Fear and anger and feeling out of control and all that is a lack of, mm -hmm. of trusting him. It's interesting that you talk, uh, one of the illustrations that um, I was going to, uh, or I was wrestling with using today and I thought I'm not going to use it, uh, but there's a, a gentleman that I work with that he gets quite uh, outraged, I believe was the word that Ron used, and he and I have had our issues over the years. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the funniest story that gets told at company events is he called me one time uh, and in the course of the conversation called me a liar. And uh, I proceeded to hang up on him, just driving down the road. You know, you got the button on your truck and I hit it. And he called me back and he said, Mike, I don't know if, if we got disconnected or you hung up on me. I said, I don't know. Did it sound like this? And I clicked the button again. And so... That is, uh, and it always gets this kind of response when this, and, and the thing is, there's a respect between he and I, but his initial response is anger. And one time he and I were talking uh, over a, a cherry cobbler, and uh, that apparently that was what bonded us, and he was telling me about his father and how that was how his father handled things. And all of a sudden, I viewed this individual in an entirely different light because I understood him. Uh, I understood that that was all he ever knew. It was taught to him, and that's how you get things done. You yell and scream until somebody changes. Um, he found out he ran up against a brick wall with me because it doesn't work. Okay, so in talking about this, um, I think uh, this was an, an, an entrance, an introduction into what we're going to be looking at today. So today is the uh, final foundational piece of um, how it is that we are called upon to live. And I think what I want you to grasp as we look at this, we looked at the Old Testament picture of the gospel. So we saw things um, that we have, uh, I've brought up multiple times, that God views two different kinds of people groups. He sees the, the righteous and the wicked. And we talked about the two kingdoms. And so that is sort of the foundational 
of truth that the Bible is built upon, and then we looked at how God was going to go about bringing about righteousness. It was going to be given, not earned. It was going to be through faith. Uh, actually, it was going to be by grace, through faith, and it was going to be in the person of Jesus who, who causes us to stumble on our own pride, which is up there. Um, so that was sort of the background. But then these last few weeks, we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul begins this section by saying, Live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. In the gospel, you have been called into this righteousness, this fellowship with God. I want you to live a life that's worthy of that. And in that process, one of the things that Paul begins to do, it's sort of backwards from what we would expect, isn't it? We would expect him to say, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, act this way. But he doesn't. He begins by talking about our attitude. He basically tells us that our attitude the attitude that we have towards ourselves and other people is is primary above our behavior. Uh, and then the second thing that he, he tells us is that the, the gospel basically speaks to us in such a way that we understand that we are, are part of the uh, participation. As we grow, we have to participate, utilizing our spiritual gifts. That's why God brings the, these giftings to us. And so he sets up for us what I think is a model, and that is that our thinking leads to our position, which ultimately affects our behavior. Uh, now, we're not going to put the two counselors in the room on the spot, but I think this model is fairly consistent with how we, you know, if you think about the teachings of Jesus, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so you begin to see this biblical pattern develop. And the reason that I wanted to bring this up, now ultimately where we're going is to talk about this down here, right? We want to talk about the behavior that God has called us to participate in. Uh, but in order to get there, I think it's important that we, we capture all this other stuff first. And so today is the last, we're putting the final piece in the wall so that we can then see uh, over the next uh, few weeks that we have remaining together, how it is that we should conduct ourselves. So let's begin by reading uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and I will begin in verse 17. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him, uh, excuse me, and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God, just as in Christ God forgave you. So that is uh, the the way that Paul sums up, if you will, the foundation is how I like to think about this. So he's ultimately going to you know, chapters 5 and 6, this is how you ought to live. But in order to get there, you got to have a bridge, and the bridge has to have a good foundation, and this is the bridge or the foundation that Paul gives us, okay? So the first part of the book is entirely about uh, nothing more than the gospel. So, in- interesting question I would like for you to ponder. Paul refers to unbelievers here as Gentiles, He says, you should no longer live in the futility of your thinking like the Gentiles do. What is the difference between uh, believers and unbelievers at its very core? What is the difference between us? Unbelievers don't have hope. Okay, unbelievers don't have hope. What else? Positionally, they're enemies of God. Okay, positionally they're enemies of God so they don't have faith. Is that, I mean, the benefits that Paul has talked about of being a child of God. Of being in faith. And I'm not trying to be coy here, I'm just, there's one other thing that we're missing love. Faith, hope, and love. They do not have love. They do not have faith. They do not have hope. And that's why, again, I referenced this, I think, last week. If you if you listen to Mark's class at all on Wednesday night, that's how God judges. That's how Paul makes an assessment of us as believers. It's on the basis of those three things, faith, hope, and love. Whether it's an individual or a corporate group, a church, it's how are you progressing in your pursuit of those three things. And we talked about the Ephesian church. Uh, remember, I asked you the question about how they did. Remember the book of Revelation when, when Jesus confronts them, he says, you have lost your first love. And so uh, we see that sort of played out again throughout the entirety of Scripture. So that fundamental difference. But what is interesting to me about this passage is Paul sort of puts, if that's the skeleton of what's wrong, he puts some flesh on it. In this passage, he tells us exactly what happened. Notice what Paul says here. He says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. That is the fundamental problem that Paul says that they are involved in, is they live in the futility of their thinking. Now, what in the world does that mean? What's futility? Hopeless. Hopeless? Waste of time and effort? What did Solomon say was futile or empty back in the book of Ecclesiastes? Everything. And 
you know, as we read the book of Ecclesiastes, we understand he's sort of saying that tongue-in-cheek, that from a, a perspective that is devoid of God, really nothing has any meaning. The, the world around us, I don't care if it's riches, if it's fame, whatever it is, none of it has meaning outside of the realm of being defined by God. And so this idea of futility is really this emptiness, uh, this this uh, idea that it lacks true perspective um I specifically wore, so these are uh, glasses that I'm supposed to wear when I drive. Uh, when I was in college, I could see um, my textbook in front of me, but I had a hard time viewing the board. And uh, so I went to the eye doctor and he's like, oh, you need glasses. And he told me I was what? What? Nearsighted, myopic. In other words, I could see things close up, but I couldn't see the things that were far away, right? In essence, that's what Paul is saying here about Gentiles. They need glasses. They need glasses that help them to see an eternal perspective, that helps them to see a perspective that is beyond what is in front of them. We, uh, Kathy and I had some friends in... Uh, Kansas City, as a matter of fact, it's still her, well, outside of me, in case she's listening, it's still her best friend. Um, But her husband used to always say, if you can feel it, taste it, touch it, it's the enemy. It's those things around us that are the cause of the problem, right? If you can't see it, it's probably true. But if you can see it, so, as uh, I was reminded, you know, this week of uh, whether it is the shooting or elections, when we see these things around us, it's easy, easy to reach out and say, oh, here's the problem, this is the problem with the world around us. We didn't do this, we didn't do that, we, we should do this, we shouldn't do that. And in reality, what Paul is saying here, no, that's not the problem. It's the truth that people base their lives on that is the fundamental problem. But that's not all that he tells us about this particular condition. Notice what he says. Uh, Not only do they live in the futility of their thinking, but verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Not only are they viewing life through an empty, myopic view, uh, and, and they have no view of eternity. Uh, as a matter of fact, I wrote, I wrote down this, this quote. They live by the quote, my uh, pastor in the church that I was growing up, I, I swear he said this every Sunday, but he said they live by the philosophy, get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the lid. Do that again. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the lid. Think of a garbage can. Put everything you can in the garbage can. Put the lid on it. But I don't want you to have what's in my garbage can, so I'm going to sit on the lid. And in reality, isn't that how much of the world around us thinks about life? It is the accumulation of goods to make me happy, to make me, you know, enjoy enjoy my life. But I don't want you to have it. You know, I don't want you to have the wonderful life, the wonderful wife, the the boat, the whatever else matters to you, right? That that is very much a, a part of how the world around us lives. And then, as I said, Paul goes on to say they're dark in, in their understanding. Um there's a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, and it's called, we refer to it as the parable of the talents. What is that parable about? We're not going to turn and look at it, but 
Okay, stewardship. Kind of let, let's fill in the story. What what happens in the story? Man, man was going away and he gave his servants different varieties of measures of talent, so or money. Okay, it was, it was ten, five, and. Or yep. So a very wealthy man had a lot of stuff. He's going to go away. And rather than, you know, investing it or saving it, he says, I'm going to give it to people to let them manage it, steward it, whatever you want. And so they do. And one of the, of the individuals is successful, right? He grows it. One of them is fairly successful. He doesn't lose it. And one of them is a failure because he just buries it, right? What is the ultimate point of that story? How does Jesus end up that story? Do you remember what he says there at the, at the end of that parable? Yeah, two. At the end of the parable, to those who grow his kingdom, he's going to be given more. To those who just sit and do nothing, they will stay where they are. Yeah. Or lose it. Yeah. He makes this statement. Um, <laughs> The one who has a lot, more is going to be given. But to the one who doesn't have, even what he has is going to be taken from him. There is a spiritual price that is paid when we turn our back on truth. When we turn our back on the reality around us, we pay a price. The problem is we don't realize it, right? So what is the worst condition to, to be blind and know that you're blind or to be blind and not know that you're blind? The second's worse, isn't it? And in reality, that is the, I think, what is being referred to here by Paul. He's saying this is the problem. They're walking around as if they know how they are supposed to be living, and in reality, they have no idea. They have no concept what is awaiting them. And so he tells us they have been darkened in their understanding. They are separated from the life of God. And when he says they're separated... He says, uh, um, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Not they're ignorant, but it's not just, you know, they were a bad student in school. They hardened their heart. That is the problem. Now, there is an age-old question in theology, who does the hardening? Because sometimes when you read, you you read and it appears that God is the one doing the hardening. And sometimes when you read, it appears that we are the ones doing the hardening. And we're not going to answer that question here, you know, that's been going on for 2,000 years. But I think the important thing that we understand is that it is happening, right? We can all agree on that. There is hardening that is occurring, and the hardening occurs, according to Paul, uh, look at what he says here next, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So basically, they turned their back completely on what was in front of them and just pursued life. He says the same thing in the book of Romans, doesn't he? That the heavens declare the glory of God. Everything that can be known about God, about his eternal qualities, is, is on display. But what does mankind do? He turns his back on that, right? 
he suppresses that truth through his wickedness and he completely turns his back. Now, what about the believers? Uh, what, how is it that they are acting? Notice what he says here uh, in verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you have heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness. So, Paul says the one fundamental concept that as a believer we are taught is that we must put off our old self, our old way of thinking, and put on a new self. When does that happen? Okay, throughout our entire lives. So it is almost a a daily reminder of that concept. Okay. Other thoughts? Anybody think it happens um, at the moment that we come to faith in Christ? Okay. No, that's when you that's when we gain the ability. Mm-hmm. But then we have to act on it throughout our lives. And the reason I'm asking that question that way is sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that, you know, when we come to Christ, uh, everything that transpired that happened automatically takes place, right? You know, just boom, it's all there. But in reality, what Paul is saying, there is a truth that is taught to us in the gospel that is very much true. But because of the tense of the verb that he uses here, he's saying it has to have a continual effect throughout our entire lives. This attitude, as we are taught, is, uh, you know, my old self has been put away. Now, let's put this in in a very practical reality. So here we are in modern day life, And all of a sudden, we're confronted with a choice. We're confronted with a choice that I can either choose to fulfill what I want, what is important to me, or I can say no to myself and yes to God. So even though I made that choice years ago, when I first came to Christ, I still have to make that choice every single day, don't I? And that's exactly what Paul is saying here is it is through that renewing process of the mind that I am able to think differently about my position and therefore it's going to affect my behavior. And and what I love about this is Paul says that's the truth that you were taught in Christ. That is the transformative truth that makes you different from the world around you. And then, it's after Paul has said all that that he says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Why in the world does Paul care about whether or not we're truthful with one another? Remember last week when we were talking about we're in this together and it is through each other uh, to use the, the language of the class that Kathy and Jim and Joyce are in, or the ministry, it's through one another that we grow in our faith into maturity, that we are challenged, that we are transformed. It is through that process. But then Paul throws us a curveball. Uh, and here is the curveball, and this was the whole point of the question earlier. He says, verse 26, quote, In your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. What in the world does that mean, and why did Paul put it there? 
What do you think? Negative anger is, is selfishness. Selfishness is original sin. So we're going back and giving you know, the devil more strength. Mm-hmm. Okay. So essentially we're playing into that futile thinking. Yeah. But as Ron pointed out, there was anger, justifiable anger in Jesus in the uh, temple when he's turning over the tables of the money changers because they were, I turned the board around, but they were perpetrating an injustice on the nation. So what do you think he's getting at here? Anger, anger is not itself neutral. Mm-hmm. It's God created anger. God is a love. We use anger to move forward with God. Justice, fighting injustice, it's a positive. If we, we take it the other way, which we have a tendency to do, which is selfishness, and we revolve around ourselves, mm-hmm. that's what Paul's talking about. Mm-hmm. If we use it in not the way in which God intended, we're moving away from God. Which is our, by the way, is our sinful nature. Yep. So, um, I'm going to ask a clarifying question here. When Jesus was angry, his anger was externally focused. Is that correct? It wasn't about him. It was about something else, right? His, his to me, okay. when Jesus was angry, it was out of his love and compassion for the people around him who were sinning. Mm-hmm. And this was a way in which he could reach them and be create a statement in which they could repent. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the, the thing that's always fascinated me about um, that story that we read about, what is it that Jesus quotes when he's doing that? Does anybody remember? The Old Testament when he's talking about making the temple yeah. into a, a mockery, essentially. Yeah. He said, you, you've taken my dwelling place, my house, and turned it into a den of robbers. He's quoting from Isaiah there. And it was the zeal, remember what they say, it is zeal for the Lord's house. Zeal for God's dwelling. Zeal for the reality of who God is. The truth of God. Um, If you would, turn to Psalm chapter 4. That's where this quotation comes from. Psalm chapter 4 is a psalm that was written and it was designed to be sung in, uh, in the worship of the Jewish people. And it is a type of psalm that we call antiphonal in that you have the cry of the psalmist and the response of God. And that's what's fascinating. So the psalmist cries out in verse 1, Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. So here is the psalmist. There is something that is coming upon him. And just in order to uh, have something to point at, I'm going to turn this back around. So the psalmist is saying, I have all this stuff, and it's causing me distress. It's causing me grief. Uh, And God, I need relief from that. Have you ever felt like that? When there is something that is occurring in your life that is just causing you to, to, whether it is loss or grief or injustice or pride, uh, any of these things that is just boiling up inside of you and causing you to be uh, frustrated. And notice the next verse, God steps in and speak and he says how long O men will you turn my glory 
into shame, how long will you love delusions and seek false gods? You see, Paul quotes from Psalm 4 because Paul knew the Old Testament and Paul knew that God had spoken to this issue and he knew that God had said, here's the problem. You look at your life and and, uh, if you imagine a circle around your life and this is everything in your life, he said, you imagine if anything confronts that, your your purpose, your plan, you're mad. And, And in that, God speaks and he says, how long are you going to turn my glory into shame. In other words, what is in this box is in reality my glory. It is you are serving a purpose which is reflecting the glory that I have given to you and you're turning it into something that is shameful because of your love of delusions. Uh, and then the psalmist speaks, uh, you know, you can tell he's sort of been uh, reminded of his ignorance. Verse 3 he says, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Then verse 4 Uh, The truth comes out. Now this is by way of the psalmist, but it is the truth of God. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart Uh, filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone O Lord make me dwell in safety you see I think what is transpiring here and Paul is picking up on this he's basically saying that the issue is when we are confronted in our life something uh, you'll remember this term I brought this up earlier God, God smacks us there is some, you know, like a stroke or multiple strokes or uh, it could be a relationship or something that intersects our purpose and our plan and all of a sudden it, it throws us into a tailspin and uh, all of a sudden we feel out of control. We feel as though our life has been derailed. That is most of the time when we get angry, isn't it? It could be the person who cuts us off in traffic. Uh, because, you know, we're looking at our watch saying i got to be there by X time. Or it could be something of greater significance than that. Uh, but basically, I think what Paul is saying here in all of this is that do not let the viewing of injustice around you lead you into sin. Because these things in reality are just an affront to the sovereignty of God. Jerry. I was just thinking, you know, in the Old Testament, it was very much a, you know, don't do these things, or, you know, and God will provide retribution and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But I think maybe what Paul is really focusing on is, is you kind of mentioned the glasses. Mm. I think it's the whole thing of the glasses of seeing things through grace and yep. God's grace towards us through Christ's death um, really makes, uh, I guess I would say, it puts a whole different twist on, on when we're treated unjustly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because Christ was treated so unjustly for our, for our benefit. Mm-hmm. So if we, see our, if we see others through those glasses of grace, it really puts a lot of perspective on what anger should be. I mean, we still should be angry at sin. 
but we really want to look at it through grace yeah. and have grace for that sinner because yeah. God had grace for us. Yep. And I think that's kind of I think I think you're exactly right. The only thing I would caution, we, we have a tendency to see the God of the Old Testament as the vicious, vindictive, vile God who, who crushes. And in, in the New Testament, we see the God of love. He's the same God, isn't he? Our perspective of him in the Old Testament sometimes is skewed. We don't understand how it could be gracious and loving to do the things that he did there. That's our fault. That's not his fault, right? So, yes, exactly. I think you're exactly right. God is asking us to see these injustices as an opportunity to bring the glasses of truth to bear on the situation. As a matter of fact, I was really struggling with uh, a, a, an application to this. And I wrestled with this all week. You know, really, I had my my studying done by Tuesday of this week. Um, but the rest of the week, I, w- I was wrestling with this idea of application. And so uh, this morning, uh, after spending some time last night reading, it just all of a sudden, I, I had an idea, and I want to share this idea with you. Uh, let me conclude by saying this. Living a life worthy of the gospel means living our lives in light of God's truth with an eternal perspective. It is seeing the eternity laid out before us and, and having in mind that truth. Now, here is the thought that I had this morning as I was uh, finishing up getting ready. And there was a couple of things that occurred to me. In what ways, I'm just going to read this because I don't have it committed to memory yet. In what ways do you allow your thinking about things to be influenced by the temporal culture around you? So I want you to think about this week. What you heard on the news, what you saw on the news. Uh, even last night I was watching a, uh, a football game as I was waiting on my son and it was in uh, Pasadena, California and they were showing the fires uh, that are burning there. And even in that I felt a sense of frustration and anger. People are losing their homes, their lives. Um, and, and in that I was all worried about what was transpiring in the here and now. Not their souls. Not their lives as it concerns an eternal God. And so I just encourage you as you think about this truth to to say, God, what ways am I allowing the truths that this world or the, the false truths that this world tries to pour into me to affect the way that I view things? Secondly, what makes you angry about what you see in the world today? Is it because it is antithetical to God's truth? Is it because we see the glory of God being profaned, or is it because we simply don't like what we see? So I saw a, a picture. It was actually, I believe, Kathy's nephew posted this, and uh, one social media site, and it was this guy. He had all kinds of piercings and tattoos on his face, and you know, basically, it said, "What are you going to say if your daughter brings this person home?" And you know, that kind of a thing. And of course, immediately, my response was, <laughs> "Get out of my house." Uh, in 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 that way. Don't we sort of do the exact same thing that Paul is saying not to do here? 
that might not be quantified as anger, but it is a visceral response to something that we perceive as wrong, but it's not based on the right reasons. It's not based on the truth of God. And then here's, here's I think, the final, and th- this is the big one. So I want you to think of something that you find to be utterly offensive. Okay? That might be uh, homosexuality. It might be uh, two people living uh, together, not married. It might be, I, I, I don't know what that is for you, but I want you to think about that. And here's what I want you to think about. As you think about engaging those individuals, I want to leave you with three things. Can you honor the fingerprint of the Creator? in those individuals without looking at just the image of the creature. Remember when we talked about that every human being still bears the fingerprint of God and in that they have value? Can you honor that and see them as that, not maybe the behavior that you see that you find offensive, but can you see that? Secondly, in humility and love, can you hear and see the brokenness and the futility of their thinking? This was the one that really got me. Can I shut my mouth long enough to listen to them, to actually hear what is causing the pain and the brokenness so that I can see the futility of their thinking? And then finally, can I pray for an opportunity to intersect that brokenness with the truth of God? You see, I think when, when and if we do those things, we are living a life worthy of the gospel message. Does that make sense, that what, we're, what we're talking about here? Okay, uh, because we're almost out of time. Sorry, I got long-winded today. I wanted to leave some time for everybody to, to share and discuss. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, with whatever time we have remaining, if you have things you want to share, uh, we can do that. Uh, Jim, would you close us in prayer, please? Dear Holy Father, we ask that your spirit continue to descend upon us, that you fill our hearts with the strength, with the, with the peace, with the knowledge of your strength within us. May you give us the minds and the hearts and the actions that glorify you in all our deeds so that the world may see, our, see us in you. May we go forward today with your strength in you, Christ, a pure and untoward love towards every person we come in contact with. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. Any any closing comments, uh, questions that maybe we didn't cover? I haven't looked at my phone to see what time it is. I lost my watch here a couple months ago. So, Yes? I think it's good for us to remember who the real enemy is. Homosexuals mm-hmm. are not the enemy. Yes. Men. Yes. And all of these other things. Mm-hmm. So that's what I need to remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I, we have people coming to ARM all the time, you know, with a uh, very broken heart. Yep. And so we do have to make a special attempt to reach out to them and see if we can help them. Yes. Whatever it might be. Yeah. And, you know, I, I didn't mention this when we were going through it, but we have a tendency, uh, go back to this uh, model, if you will, we have a tendency to want to go right down here to focus on this, don't we? 
when in reality, this is the stuff we need to focus on. We need to focus on the thinking and what their ultimate position is uh, and help them to realize what their position is, that they are loved, valued uh, members of, of God's creation. So. Very good point. Uh, I would tell you, uh, I see Kathy uh, left. It's probably a good thing she's not here for this. But she has reminded me over and over again throughout the years, um, very gently, the times that I am, my pride is what is at stake. Not what is right, or but it's my pride. And, and we need those. You know, to me, that's the whole concept of one anothering. Uh, that is, it, it, sometimes we need somebody to be a, a mirror to us to say, hey, you're just worried about yourself in this. Uh, so, yes, very good point. We don't usually have a desire to be wrong. Mm. <laughs> I thought of a joke, but I thought I'd better not share it. <laughs> Any other thoughts? So uh, just so you know where we are going from here, we will uh, look at chapters uh, 5 and just see some of those things that Paul lays out as behaviors. Uh, But they, they will always take in mind this model. So I encourage you to sort of commit this to at least, you know, if you have a, a, a photographic memory, commit that to, to your memory. That it is our thinking that determines our position, uh, it, which ultimately uh, determines our behavior. And in this thinking, remember, it is that repetitive attitude. It, you know, I, I like to think of it this way. We don't repent and come to Christ. We keep repenting. Every day we keep repenting, uh, reminding ourselves that I need him as much today as I did, you know, the day that I first came to him. So, and Kathy's coming back, so now we all have to be uh, on our best behavior. So, well, thank you all. Have a wonderful week. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.